The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by Melrose Health. Founded in 1979, Melrose Health has been delivering improved health over three decades by developing natural, delicious and innovative health foods from the best natural and organic ingredients. Their healthy kitchen oils range has just launched and includes my favourites, liquid coconut oil, grass-fed ghee and avocado oil. Visit melrosehealth.com.au or check out at Melrose Health on Instagram to learn more. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In today's episode of The Real Food Real, Ellie McLean interviews me about my personal pregnancy journey. You will learn about my pre-pregnancy cleanse, the significance of gut health, and natural strategies to overcome morning sickness. We discuss the essential prenatal and antenatal supplements, covering the MTHFR polymorphism, and why Alivert may not be the right choice for you. We also explored the key testing parameters and why I personally chose not to undertake the glucose tolerance test. Before tuning in, we ask you to please remember that pregnancy is a very individual journey and to always seek personalized health support from a practitioner who knows your entire medical history and current health status. Hi, everybody. So it's quite fitting that we have this conversation today because today is actually Steph's last day in the clinic before she heads off on maternity leave. Um, And what we're going to do is have a little bit of a discussion about her pregnancy journey. Um, To date, Steph has been quite quiet about this subject. Some of you may have seen her updating on Instagram and that sort of thing, but she's been relatively quiet. And so we sort of wanted to open it up today. Um, and give Steph an opportunity to share about her story. Obviously, not to replace the need of you working one-on-one with, um, with anybody on your pregnancy journey, but just to give you a little insight and perhaps a little edge when it comes to you and your pregnancy journey or those around you. So a conversation that I'm really looking forward to, Steph. Yeah, me too. Looking forward to sharing, you know, what I've done and my lessons along the way. I'm very close to the end now. So um, hopefully able to share knowledge that others can use in either their own personal pregnancy journey or to share with their loved ones, of course. 
Yeah. And I'm sure you'll get to it during this conversation, but you have had such a beautiful pregnancy, you know, have just been glowing throughout and energetic and really haven't um, skipped a beat. So uh, I think that makes you a very good person to be talking about this. (laughs) I hope so. I think I've done pregnancy quite well. Um, And, you know, that I don't think that's an accident. Like I often hear myself saying, oh, yeah, I've been really lucky. But it's the wrong word. You know, I did invest the time to prepare and, you know, really look at what I was doing, which I want to share today. So that, you know, obviously certain things in pregnancy, like, you know, morning sickness doesn't discriminate. But I think there's a lot that we can do to set ourselves up for the best you know, conception, pregnancy and beyond. Yeah, yeah. So you are notorious for preparing, planning ahead, scheduling things. Um, when did you start planning for your pregnancy? Obviously, it's, you know, it's probably something that's been on the bucket list for, for life, but when did you specifically start preparing, um, you know, for becoming pregnant? Yeah, so I did a three-month preparation period um, quite deliberately knowing like my timeline was, you know, working back from, it sounds funny, but back, back, working back from the release of my book baby mm-hmm. um, just because I knew I wanted to be touring in November and December while I could still travel. Um, so I sort of worked backwards from there and set myself up with a three-month um, like protocol per se. As we know, the you know the the gut health focus is huge as that's what we pass on to our baby as a mother so you know whilst i always have a focus on improving my gut and as you guys know i've shared you know my results of previous microbiome testing and what i've done in the past um i really just wanted to pick pick things up again and and make sure i was really focusing on creating a really diverse microbiome and you know, setting myself up to be able to pass the best gut health onto my bub. Um, So, of course, that would involve things like bone broth. um, But I think, you know, as we always discuss on the show, people are forgetting about the prebiotics and the resistant starch that we definitely need to feed our beneficial bacteria that live in the large intestine or that are going in via fermented foods and beverages. So, you know, using things like cooked and cooled sweet potato. Um, and I also use a green banana resistant starch in my morning smoothie. Um, and just really acknowledging the food diversity. You know, we're always quick to jump to pills and potions, but we have to acknowledge that food diversity, so different foods, colours, proteins, vegetables, fats, gives us a really great platform for growing this microbiome that resembles a beautiful, flourishing rainforest. So, you know, I didn't add anything fancy that I hadn't sort of been doing before, but perhaps it was a little bit more consolidated in that three months to set the scene. Um, Also knowing that, you know, personally, I knew I was going to be looking at, you know, being quite heavily pregnant in summer. So while it was cooler weather, I was definitely getting a lot more um, bone broth in. And, you know, more recently I've switched to doing like a bone broth proteins because 
I'm a walking oven as it is with how much heat I'm carrying. So I've been drinking a lot less hot beverages now, but certainly back um, in my prep, yeah, there was at least a couple of cups of bone broth every day. Yeah. And look, you're, you were already, you know, consuming such an incredibly healthy diet. Um, and of course, you know, achieving that, that rainbow of foods or that broad range of foods. Were there any things that you specifically avoided during that preparation period? Well, actually, I'm glad you asked because I was just thinking about um, even sort of pre like planning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most people will know that I also got married recently and I shared what I did to feel my best on my wedding day. And I had certainly been experimenting and, you know, doing a considerable amount of intermittent fasting. But what I really had to do was acknowledge that, you know, is that the right decision for my you know, my conception or my fertility journey. And we think about, you know, fasting as being, you know, mostly really beneficial for, you know, improving our fat burning capacity and our metabolic efficiency and autophagy and longevity. But removing food when you're trying to create this body that's a perfect host to procreate (laughs) is not really the best idea. So I'd already started to avoid fasting. I don't, I definitely still eat intuitively, but I wasn't doing my usual 16-8. And I think that's an important point to acknowledge because, you know, we do encourage fasting so much, but it's got to be that right time and place. Yeah, I was just going to say the exact same thing. I'm sure we've got such a band of followers, people that are um, that are using intermittent fastly um, during the week. But knowing when when the right time is for that is is really really important. Yeah, and I had to have a good look in the mirror about that because it was such a ritual for me, and it was something that I um, really thrived on. But you know, it was a small adjustment considering the end goal that I was achieving. Yeah. In terms of foods that I avoided, um, I'd say nothing really changed there. Um, you know, I, I never eat gluten. I don't eat refined sugar, um, and really, I only have small amounts of dairy, which I've probably, probably even decreased over the course of my pregnancy. Um, just from a, a palate point of view, you know, based on what I've been feeling like, but also there is um, lots of research around the incidence of colic in women that consume too much dairy. So just keeping that in mind so that I have hopefully a very well, um, you know, well settled baby with no feeding issues and um, no intolerances. Yeah, fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, coming back to that discussion around intermittent fasting, I think is is something that I do want to talk on a little bit more because um, obviously meal frequency and meal timing mm-hmm. probably changed a little bit over the course of your pregnancy. Um, as we all know, you know, your energy intake, your energy requirements will differ during pregnancy, perhaps not to that point where, you're, you know, you're eating for two, um, but it does differ. So, um, did you enjoy that? You know, did you enjoy perhaps eating more frequently, eating more, um, or again, was it something you had to adjust to? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'm definitely not eating more, but that's, <laughs> um, more frequently. Yes, but definitely not eating more. Um, I'm, I've always sort of carried quite high and 
that means that there are feet on my stomach and my stomach volume is actually much, much smaller, which is interesting. Um, I always visualize being that pregnant lady, you know, sitting in bed yelling out to Ian to grab me dessert from the freezer or whatever it was. And it's just not happening because I really can't fit that much food in. But obviously being really conscious of getting the right nutrients in I have split my meals down and even, you know, as recently as yesterday, my lunch was in two. Um, you know, I, I, I think I had lunch at 12.30, half a salad, and then I would have finished the rest of it at like three o'clock or a, along those lines. So the main thing that I think is the takeaway from that is that, you know, we still want blood sugar control, right? We don't want to fall into the trap of eating for two or smashing the carbs because then we have this really dysregulated blood sugar, which we know, of course, is going to lead to ongoing mood issues, energy issues, cravings, and just out of control, which is the last thing you need when you're growing a human. So yes, I might be eating more frequently, um, but I still really wanted to focus on moderating my carbohydrates more than I was eating um, prior to this journey, but definitely not going crazy and looking for complex carbohydrates with every meal and just being really conscious of nutrient density within reason. I definitely haven't been perfect um, and neither do I want to be. It's been actually a really nice change just to have a, a different focus, um, but with that blood sugar control in mind. Yeah. You know, people may have heard you talk before about that ideal split um, from a macronutri- macronutrient perspective of, um, you know, around about 20% carbohydrates, 20% protein and 60% fats. Is, is that something that you had to modify during your pregnancy or did the increasing total volume of energy um, sort of allow for that little bit of extra carbohydrate to come in? Yeah, to be honest, I haven't even tracked my macros. So I think, yeah, yeah. I just, uh, you know, you and I have had this conversation before. Um, As a as a guide, if I was having three main meals a day, I wanted one or two of those to still be like low carb. So one, at least one meal that was just the non-starchies, the protein, and the fats, and then the one or two others is where there'd be fruit or starch or, you know, just that extra carbohydrate. which, you know, I, I don't know whether that would have been sort of more like 20 or 30%, um, but like there would have been a, a slight shift between my carbs and my fats. They are a, a seesaw after all, my protein being pretty constant. Mm. Um, naturally, that's different when you fast though, yeah, because fasting, you naturally only have two meals a day um, and it's rare that my snack on those days, you know, before pre-pregnancy would have had like a, a full serve of protein. So with every meal having, uh, sorry, every day having three meals, you know, I am getting a a fairly good amount of protein because each meal is having, you know, that full portion, Mm. whether it be the protein powder or the fish or the, you know, the red meat or the the vegetarian option. So yeah, I, um, I just, it's just, I honestly think it's intuitive and you can't learn that overnight. I've obviously been doing this for decades now, but I really wanted to be able to just listen to my body and have what I felt like. Um, And, you know, yes, there are cravings and then there are cravings. And I think you can usually find a way to make a healthier choice. And um, that, you know, the end result is, is so positive. 
Yeah. I think though you take for granted what an incredible foundation you've, you've had sort of leading into this pregnancy. So to say, like, listen to your body and, and the cravings aren't so much of an issue. Like I think everybody would love to think they're in a similar situation, but you know, um, a lot of people listening to this would just be thinking, Oh my God, I'm pregnant and I've got cravings galore right now. Like, why is this? Um, yeah. So perhaps you could give people a little insight into why they may be feeling that way. Yeah. I mean, there's a few things to definitely consider. Um, firstly, <laughs> I will just say that you don't need a nutrition degree to understand that like giving up on your nutrition and just eating whatever you feel like is possibly not the best decision for the developing child. Like I think we do need to use a little bit of common sense there. And everybody knows that you don't actually eat for two. Like if we even look at the national guidelines, the caloric increases that were recommended are between, you know, a couple of hundred to 500 extra a day, which is like one snack or a small meal. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really not double. So we have to definitely keep that in mind. Um, But cravings do come from pork poor blood sugar control. So if we look at a typical first trimester, you know, I was, you know, blessed by very minimal morning sickness. Um, The only thing that I experienced was a little bit of reflux, which I I believe is coming from that carrying high sort of stomach, even though, you know, I didn't have a big baby at that time. It was just um, the default of um, that stomach volume and a part of, I guess, what would be a typical trimester one symptom, but it was very minor compared to what um, most women experience. But obviously, if you're starting the day with a lot of morning sickness, you're really not going to be looking for a green smoothie and most people default to, you know, toast. (laughs) And um, we set up our blood sugar control to have cravings and um, that obviously can shape the entire day. There is also that the hormonal influence, we know the HCG is what's obviously significantly increasing with each week of pregnancy. Um, and that's a big reason why we can get the typical um, nausea or morning sickness, especially in trimester one. Um, although, you know, some people unfortunately do experience that for the entire pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and cravings can be related to those hormonal changes as well. Mm. And what about morning sickness? Is that something that you've experienced much of? No, no. Well, as I just said, I I think I was really quite lucky to um, only have that little bit of reflux initially in trimester one. Um, I really couldn't say I had any nausea, but what I did notice is that, you know, quite the opposite to what I'd been doing was that, you know, first thing in probably say late trimester one, I felt like I really needed to eat as soon as I'd woken up. So I didn't want to sort of go out and exercise first thing like I normally would have been doing before pregnancy. So I might have just had like a piece of paleo toast with peanut butter or half a banana with some peanut butter and that really did the job. You know, interestingly, bananas are really high in B6. I was just going to say, that isn't it? Yeah, it's our magic anti-nausea nutrient or vitamin, um, which I think is really interesting that I was craving foods like that. So again, the body's quite intuitive um, and that really did the job for me first thing. And then I often found that I didn't really need like much until later. Like let's say if I was up at seven, having that small snack, I wouldn't really need breakfast till sort of nine or 10 because I'd taken the edge off um, with my little snack and or a sort of a decaf MCT coffee. Mm. And so 
the banana obviously did it for you in terms of giving that that dose of B six to to help um, to help in that morning to help in the morning. Um, what about for people where that nausea or that morning sickness is a little long lasting? Um, are there any other foods that they could turn to, or do you think a supplement um, would be necessary? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I mean, we can definitely look to other B6 foods, but for those that are um, having like quite a lot of aversions to food um, and significant morning sickness, like really we pres- as nutritionists, we prescribed 25 milligrams of B6 up to three times a day. Um, and that's something that can be really helpful, um, especially combined with ginger. You know, you think about ginger as like a, a travel sickness um, solution. It has a very similar role or it can be very beneficial in uh, morning sickness as well. And that's usually about uh, 600 milligrams um, once a day. And that's something that I think I'd love everyone to know about because a lot of people put up with morning sickness and they feel like there's no way out, especially mm. when it's not even stopping at week 12. Mm, um, going. You know, my heart goes out to those women. Um, but I speak to a lot of people that don't know that they've got some natural, or fairly natural strategies up, up their sleeve. So that's something to really keep in mind. Yeah. Um, In terms of those other B6 foods, listeners, our green cruciferous vegetables are a great source of B6. So, um, you know, if you're pregnant and you haven't got the cravings for the broccoli or the cauliflower or the Brussels sprouts, then please just, you know, perhaps a little bit of mind over matter um, and eventually you may find them work in your favour. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to come back to foods like your aversions can be quite different throughout the whole pregnancy. Um, and I think it's important to reassess rather than rule something out for the entire 10 months. Mm. So flipping a little bit away from food um, and looking again, sort of pre-pregnancy and obviously into pregnancy, um, what was what was your supplement protocol like? And again, coming back to what I said before, this is not to replace the need of any sort of tailored advice um, for listeners out there, but um, I think interesting to know perhaps what you did from a pre-pregnancy and pregnancy supplement standpoint. Yeah. So, I mean, in Australia, we're recommended that we take a prenatal for the one month prior to conception, but I started three months in line with that um, protocol that we touched on earlier about the gut health focus in line was that was commencing my prenatal. Um, Now I don't tolerate folate, so I wouldn't take the standard recommendations like folate or a Blackmores due to my MTHFR polymorphism. So I've been taking a practitioner um, quality prenatal that contains the activated form of folate. Um, but it's also a really great sort of, you can look at it as being quite multi in nature as well, you know, small amounts of zinc and all of our cofactors and minerals and a really great way to support, obviously, in the first um, phase of pregnancy that folate or a version of that is recommended to avoid spina bifida and and neural tube defects, so very important. Um, But I've been continuing to take that tablet the entire pregnancy, one, because it contains the adequate amount of the activated folate that I need for my genetic polymorphism, but two, because I'm definitely not eating six cups of vegetables a day and I really wanted to make sure I was looking at that extra support from a supplement due to just my, my dietary changes and stomach volume issues. So I've continued that the whole time. Not everyone needs to. That's where I think you definitely want to be getting practitioner support. Mm-hmm. Um, but in clinic, as you know, Ellie, we get all of our 
clients tested for MTHFR so that they're aware of that before they start taking Elevate or experiencing issues down the line that could be avoided um, if they are aware of their um, inability to tolerate that synthetic folate that is recommended by every doctor and is mm-hmm. in you know any research that you do about prenatal support online. Yeah. I mean, for anybody who wants to hear more about that specifically, um, Steph and I did have a chat about that last year and we can definitely link back to that recording in the show notes. Um, but in terms of that active folate supplement, like that's, that's something that most people could benefit from, right? Like, um, genetic polymorphism on that MTHFR gene or not, it's absolutely worth exploring um, what prenatal options there are aside from the very popular off-the-shelf, off the um, you know, folic acid-containing supplements. Yeah, great point because, I mean, synthetic is synthetic, right? We've still got to convert it a number of times for it to be activated in the body and bioavailable. So, you know, if you're going to invest, I mean, you are because you're <laughs> you're going to be taking a prenatal, so you're investing in it. So why not get the highest quality available? And, you know, I don't want to point the finger at Elevate again, but their major marketing tool is that it contains this 800 micrograms of folate, like more is more and, and more is not always more. And I think it's really important that we can see through the marketing messages and the campaigns because, you know, otherwise we'd think, oh, this is the best product because it's got double what, you know, X and Y have. But that can cause a lot of issues in people and, and more is not always more. No, definitely not. Um, and so there are, you know, there are other supplements that people may commonly have, you know, things like omega-3. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that something that you included in your plan? Yeah, I'm a little bit ad hoc with my omegas. Um, Truth comes I, out. Yeah, I know. I'd like to think I get enough for my diet, um, but I tend to supplement in line with what my diet looks like. You know, the body doesn't work in a way that you need to have the exact amount every day. You can kind of take a step back and look at the week um, or the month and have a look at, all right, well, how many serves of um, oily fish have I, have I been consuming? What other omegas am I, um, am I, yeah, what am I, what am I including? And for me also, like there's, um, you know, we, I used to take 3000 to 6000 milligrams of fish oil a day, but it's just not enough of clinical research around those high volumes in pregnancy. So I'm just being a little bit more conservative with my overall volume, bearing in mind, um, that, you know, what, what science hasn't proven yet. So I'm lucky that I love fish and it hasn't been an aversion at all. In fact, I've, I'm, um, you know, loving the fact that I've been able to enjoy that as an alternate protein. Um, and I, you know, I actually feel like I've had to kind of rein it in because there are recommendations around obviously not including too much uh, mercury-rich fish. So I would have eaten more if I could have. <laughs> so no, no issues there with having to avoid um, certain foods. Yeah, Mainly just smells to like toxic things like um, a paint, perfume, chlorine, like no food aversions, interestingly, but just mm-hmm. my body's obviously really um, protecting bubs by telling me to avoid any of those really strong, like chemical-like smells. <laughs> oh, so interesting. Yeah, um, dry reaching at the smell of paint has been quite fun. <laughs> oh, well, don't come over to my house at the moment because I'm having my floors redone and it's um, <sighs> testing me for sure. 
Oh dear. Yes. Mm. Not good for the body, but definitely not when your sense of smell is heightened, which is what many people experience during pregnancy and um, can cause the food aversions. But yeah, for me, it was more, as I mentioned, the paint and the chlorine walking past a public pool. (laughs) So the, um, so the, the supplement you've been on, it's that um, practitioner only prenatal. um, And that's what you've been, you've, you've sort of carried out throughout pregnancy. Is there anything else that you've been having? Yeah, I mean, I've always continued my MAG and C. There's some pretty phenomenal research around those two nutrients helping to prevent um, miscarriages or early-term pregnancy. That wasn't my intention. I just found that interesting when I was looking again at some of the literature. Um, They're my staples. I've always taken those. It's my ritual before bed to mix those up in a glass of water. Um, And from that whole sort of toxic conversation, what I really noticed is how sensitive I was to things like either flying or, you know, being around um, in the city. So sort of probably once or twice a week, I was just adding in a little bit of bentonite clay to help my body detox. Seeing as, you know, I can't really, I wasn't running and sweating. You can't go in an infrared sauna when you're pregnant. And there's lots of herbs that you can't take and essentially many that would support phase one and phase two liver detoxification are contraindicated during pregnancy. So um, some bentonite clay appears in there. Um, And then, of course, I had all my probiotics, but they mostly come from food these days. Although when I haven't um, consumed adequate probiotics from food or beverages, I have had a, a pregnancy probiotic in the fridge here at work that I'd have once or twice a week just to pick up the pieces. Hmm, okay. And for those of you listening who are interested in the probiotic side of things and the gut health side of things um, that, that Steph was alluding to earlier in terms of the importance of your gut health for your baby, um, we do have Kirsty Worth on the, show, on the show talking specifically about that very soon. So keep your ears peeled for that episode. Mm-hmm. So much to come. Oh, yes, so much in that conversation, I'm sure. Um, now, I want to change direction a little bit and talk um, talk a bit about the testing that you had done both um, as you were looking to become pregnant and during pregnancy. We've already talked a little bit about that MTHFR testing, which is something that we always do in clinic um, when preparing somebody for pregnancy. And that's obviously something you've, you know, you've been aware of your expression there um, for quite some time, but what else did you, um, did you have a look at prior to conception? Yes. Thank you. And can you remind me to come back to the supplement that I've added in more recently? Cause I didn't actually add that to the list, um, because it wasn't something I was doing in, in T1 or T2. So I'll come back to that in line okay. with what I found out with my blood testing. Yeah. Um, look, you know, you'll, you'll do a full suite of bloods, um, with like your doctor or your midwife, whoever you're working with. Um, And they're just like, they look at your vitamin D, they look at your thyroid, they look at your iron studies, you know, all of your your standard um, FBEs and LFTs, like liver function tests. And what I really wanted to highlight is how our our thyroid function can change. So usually the only thyroid test that's done off the bat is TSH, which is our thyroid stimulating hormone. It's actually a pituitary hormone, um, but TSH can be um, artificially elevated 
due to the influence of the pregnancy hormones looking very similar in the body. And so I had this interesting conversation with my GP at the time where she was like, oh, your TSH is quite high. If you don't get that down, you'll need to go on thyroxin. <gasps> and I just politely smiled and nod and thought, okay, let me take these results and have a look. And, you know, obviously I'm not going to start taking a pharmaceutical unless I had an autoimmune disease, as you can imagine. But um, I just found it quite surprising that such an off-the-cuff statement would be made when we clearly know that's a potential side effect of HCG. Yeah, and, and do, um, do you know what the numbers were, mm, what that TSH was? I'm just Mine? Yeah. Yeah, mine was closer to three. So we know the reference ranges are pretty horrific when it comes to TSH, although it's changing. You know, some labs will, will put the top end of the reference range up to sort of 4.5 or even 5. Um, and my doctor was concerned when I was about... Three, which I found quite funny because no doctor would ever look at you if you had a three normally. normally. Yeah, but I was quite shocked with three. I mean, I've got a history of higher TSH, but usually, you know, above two, 2.5. So it wasn't a huge jump relative to, you know, previous markers, but um, still a really interesting thing I want other people to be aware of because firstly, you know, by all means get the information, but... um, Let's look at some natural strategies first before we jump down the pharmaceutical route. Mm. And I'd always ask for a retest, you know, go away and eat some Brazil nuts and have some, you know, some dulse flakes or some iodized sea salt and see if you can balance out your thyroid and, you know, have a look at what your body does um, naturally first, please. Yeah. <laughs> and is that a marker that you've, tr- you've tracked um, throughout pregnancy? Like how many times have you had to repeat test that? I've only done it twice. Okay. Yeah, so nothing I was concerned about. Um, and I'm working with a different practitioner now. I'm not actually with that GP anymore. I'm with a midwife and um, they always got more of a, a view around sort of our philosophy and um, there's no concern there at all. Yeah, okay, good, good. Um, the other one is obviously the, the standard oral glucose tolerance test that the majority of pregnant women get yes, um, you about that. in, <laughs> yeah, it's usually, oh, it's, often around about um, um, 24 weeks from memory. Anyway, I didn't do it, so I don't know what week normally conduct that because um, there is quite a, um, a false positive that can result from these tests. It's a, you know, a two-hour test where you consume a 70 grams worth of glucose in an oral solution to, as a gold standard to test for gesta- gestational diabetes. Obviously, very important to test for. Um, but someone like myself and many of my clients who haven't consumed 75 grams of glucose in the last, you know, year, let alone in uh, two hours, are naturally not going to tolerate that solution very well. They would exhibit, you know, quite um, negative symptoms following the consumption of that solution. And unfortunately, many people are then given a false positive diagnosis of gestational diabetes. I'm not saying don't test. I want to make that really clear. But if your HbA1c is normal, you don't have diabetes. So what I don't understand is why we're not doing that first. So, you know, I was lucky enough to work with a midwife. I don't know if I had a look on my face, but she starts talking about the GTT and she said, you're not going to do that, are you? (laughs) And I said, oh, respectfully, can we just look at my HbA1c first, please? And she said, yeah, no worries. Let's do that. And if that's high, you'll have to do the GTT. Is that okay? Like kind of doing a deal with me. And I was like, great, love it. Like love how open she was to it. It's the first time I've ever heard that actually being um, an option because most people are just doing the test. Um, 
And that was great. My HbA1c is 4.9, which is bang on. We want to see sort of less than 5.3 in a very tight reference range. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, no further testing required. So I didn't have to drink the 75 grams of glucose and happy days. But interestingly, that's not used more frequently, especially, mm. you know, we know once you, once you reach that third trimester, that HbA1c is going to be a marker of your average blood glucose over a, over a three-month period. So relevant. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Mm. Totally. But that's something I've been sharing with my clients more recently because, you know, where the candidates to get um, a, a false positive, obviously there are people, there are anomalies and there's bio-individuality, don't get me wrong, but I think it's nice to have that information if you're working with a doctor who will allow you to that HbA1c first or even fasting insulin, um, worthwhile a conversation. They're going to make the call. It's not going to be me at the end of the day. Um, but... Yeah, I think let's get some more information. But just to clarify, um, it's actually between 26 and 28 weeks. Okay. All right. Yeah. Thanks for updating us on that on the spot. <laughs> yeah. Um, was there anything else from a testing standpoint that you wanted to talk on? Yeah, for me, um, what I wanted to come back to was iron studies. So, That's you know, right. I've tracked my ferritin for years, just as a fairly standard um, sort of six-monthly that I um, – I do, you know, year in, year out. And for me personally, nothing really changed from a dietary point of view, although there was less broth. That's not insignificant. But between um, between 20 and 32 weeks, my ferritin halved. Mm. And you are literally sharing your ferritin stores with another human. So it's not unlikely that you're going to get quite a big drop in ferritin. And many people... Um, experience fatigue in pregnancy that they purely link to being pregnant and they don't do any testing. And then when someone finally does their iron, they've got like levels of four and they need an infusion and it's disastrous. So I think testing your iron a little bit more frequently, regardless of symptoms, is very important because, again, you want to get that information before it goes too far. So for me, I was actually feeling a little bit tired at the time I was doing a lot of traveling and book launching. It was the end of the year. So it would have been very easy to blame it on, you know, the circumstances. But I also really decided that I was going to take a supplement because I couldn't possibly eat any more red wheat, red meat. I got onto my bone broth protein by that time. Um, and so in the last, say, probably, I'd say maybe coming up to eight weeks now, I've been taking a really high quality, so a Metagenics um, iron just once a day and these are really good irons that don't have any of the old school sort of constipation issues that mm. iron supplements of the um, 80s certainly used to do and um, hopefully I won't need to take it for much longer because Bubs is about three weeks away and you know I didn't want to take an iron supplement but I didn't want to be tired either so it was a, mm. it was a decision I had to make yeah and look for those listening like iron iron does form part of some very common off-the-shelf um, uh, pregnancy supplements but obviously did not form part of what you were having or at least not um not enough to support yeah you. not enough yeah not enough based on my requirements in the third trimester which is generally where you have to be a lot more careful so hopefully you've got some schedules some scheduled blood tests but if not you can easily request that just to check where things are at and important to keep an eye on as the baby's um growing quite significantly by that point in time mm. 
Now, Steph, you just said three weeks away. I cannot believe you're three weeks away <laughs> from, from having a baby. For those of you that have seen mm-hmm. Steph recently, you'll know that, um, yeah, you're really still just, you're just cruising along so nicely, um, energy levels and, um, you know, just that level of vigour. Um, which is is fantastic. So, you know, I'm so, so happy for you. I'm glad that it's been such an amazing pregnancy. Um, Thank you. I will just add on that. What I would love everyone to do is to empower themselves with knowledge and try to get out of the fear trap. Because when I was first pregnant and, you know, you can't eat this and you've got to avoid raw fish and people are treating you like you're made of eggshells, like it, I found it quite confronting that everyone's fear was being projected onto me and I worked really hard to have quite a positive mindset and practice yoga and really work on creating this beautiful pregnancy. Now, I know that not everyone has the same experience as me, so I hope you're not giving me a virtual punch in the face now because I know everyone's different, but I think avoiding the trap of it being this fear-based medical condition because you are not ill. You are growing a human and it can be a beautiful experience Um, But we would love to help you at The Natural Nutritionist because I think there are lots of old school conversations that need to be updated. Um, And I would love to share my journey with those that um, are looking for that support from us here at the clinic because it can be a really positive experience. And I honestly wish that for everyone. Mm. As do the rest of us here at TNN. Um, Is there anything else, Steph? Just I want to give you a bit of space to um, say anything else to the audience that you may have been thinking or want to share with them. Yeah, I think probably just the only thing we haven't touched on are those foods that you can and can't eat. And that kind of falls into the, the, um, the fear bucket around being, you know, I think we have to be really mindful. And, of course, um, there are foods like raw fish and raw eggs. And, you know, I think, you know, looking to avoid salad bars and anything where there's that risk of um, listeria or like dirt and salmonella, of course we have to be careful. Um, but I think our bodies are really clever. You know, if you're about to eat something that's wrong for your baby, I think your body will give you some signs like aversions or some intuition that you can pay attention to. Like, of course, follow the guidelines, but know that your body's very robust. And if you've done the work, you'll be able to carry a human full term and you'll have a really healthy experience, especially with focusing on mindset as well. I think that's a really important part of it. And you choose who you speak to and you, you choose who you don't. Like people like to tell you um, like scary stories or sad stories or, you know, we don't tend to share the positive stories. So I just selected who I was talking to about what and had some polite statements um, when I felt like someone was telling me that something that was a little bit inappropriate or, or upsetting. You know, just being able to have that nice one-liner to deflect a conversation that you don't want to be involved in can be really helpful as well. Mm. And I love that statement about intuition and listening to your body. And, and that's obviously where things like yoga and meditation, um, you know, just taking that time to connect with your body um, can become so, so helpful during, during pregnancy. Yeah, I totally agree. It's a beautiful time. You know, I, I think it's a beautiful time in your life and um, empowering yourself with knowledge and having a team of people that are on your page, that speak your language, that live your philosophy can make it so night and day to being in a a model that maybe doesn't suit your philosophy or where it is quite fear-based or 
medical in nature because, yeah, as I said, you're not ill. You don't have a medical condition. <laughs> mm. Now, one mm. last question. If there was any reading or any book um, that you would point our listeners in the direction of, what would that be? Uh, I would say Birthing with Confidence by Rhea Dempsey. It's not so much food related, um, but it was life-changing for me, mm. especially when we talk about the you know, our relationship to pain and the fear around um, hospitals versus homes versus pain versus natural interventions, C-sections, all the decisions that we have to make. Um, She's a a Melbourne-based lady, pardon me? Birthing with confidence, you said. Yes. She's a Melbourne-based lady. I actually went and saw her for like a a session just to talk to her about my emotions and any fears that I had. And, you know, I'm happy to share that because for me it was a really positive experience just to – tick all those boxes and make sure I was preparing myself. Like, you know, you don't grow up knowing how to do this. Like, yeah, it's innate to a degree because we're females, um, but there are so many things that you learn along the way and I will continue to do that. Um, But, yeah, check that book out. It was definitely an absolute um, game changer for me and I'll probably read it again in the next couple of weeks because it would be nice to refresh some of her theories. Yeah, I think so. Good time for it. Well, thank you so much, Steph. Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us on the show. Um, I'm sure it's not the last we'll hear of, of, um, of your pregnancy journey, but thank you so much for sharing. And, you know, from me and everybody else sort of who's, who's been listening, um, just all the best to you over the next three weeks and have the most magical birthing experience. Thank you so much. I look forward to um, sharing more with you guys at a later stage. And let me know if you have any questions or if there's anything else you want um, covering. Love to hear from you. So speak soon. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.